Aloha, Kohala, and beyond. This is Holly Allgood, and you are listening to Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. I'm very excited to have a special guest today. Her name is Eddie Cash Dudley, and she's an attorney right here on the Big Island in Waimea, and uh, her specialty is end-of-life documents. So that's a hard conversation for a lot of us to have. A lot of us uh, put off talking about what we need at the end of our life, but it's a very important one to have. So we're really happy this morning to have Eddie Cash Dudley here to talk with us. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm delighted to share my passion, which is to help people with their end-of-life planning. And that's what I've been doing since I've been in Hawaii, since 2014. Retired from California as an attorney there in family law. Came over here, started doing a lot of of end-of-life planning documents for people and realized that that was where the need was on this island. And what's your experience? Do most people have end-of-life documents or plans? Most people don't. In fact, I was talking with hospice the other day and they were talking about the fact that many people who come in do not have end-of-life planning documents and they try to fill that gap as well. Could you tell us what does it mean when someone goes into hospice? It means that they've had a diagnosis of six-month terminal and they're looking for the support, the medical and um, emotional support, social support that they receive from hospice. And we don't have a hospice facility in North Hawaii, so basically people are still in home but they're receiving supportive services on a frequent basis from hospice nurses, CNAs, social workers, volunteers. So that's an especially vulnerable population needing what you're talking about. It is, and they do provide that. Uh, I will be volunteering with them to help them provide that for their patients as well. And that's something new. I haven't done that before, so it's going to be interesting to see how well I respond to that end-of-life crisis. But my experience with most of the people here is it feels like it's a fear that if I write a will, I'm going to (laughs) die. It's almost right. Well, a lot of people say what you think happens. (laughs) I think that's why a lot of people don't want to think about it. Right. And we've had so many situations where it was so necessary. And I really, I look at it as a gift to your family. If you can let your family know what your wishes are, both end-of-life planning as well as the legal documentation to support that, that's the greatest gift you can give to them. Oh, it really is. Mm-hmm. I, uh, As you know, I'm in real estate, and what I see is, especially at the end of someone's life, if their house is sold and, and their affairs aren't in order, it really becomes a nightmare for the family in terms of who gets what and how to how to do things fairly and as, the, as whoever the person who left the planet would have wanted it. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to do. Um, I look at end-of-life documentation as educational tools. For example, my favorite one <laughs> is the Advanced Health Care Directive. I feel like everybody ought to have one. I had 8,000 family law cases between me and the other lawyers in my firm in California, and we did 8,000 advanced health care directives. Tell us exactly what that is. Well, I bought them from the California Medical Association by the box because they're fairly complicated documents. But an advanced health care directive is an educational tool that is a gift to your family that tells your family how you want your end of life to be. Most people think of it as a pull the plug 
docu document, but it's much, much more than that. It can be just pull the plug. There is a, a free advanced healthcare directive through Mal, which is a website, and it does have in there your end of life planning, but most people use it for if they're in an irreversible coma, if they're brain dead, if they're not able to make their own decisions, then they can designate an agent to make that decision on their behalf. And that agent has the right to talk to their doctors and find out what is best for that person. So they can terminate life support, but it's also much more than that. It's also the one that I like to use has what end of life planning is. If you're in a convalescent hospital, for example, do you want the windows open? Do you want to have company? Would you like to have music in your room? Would you like to go out of doors? So there are many aspects to end of life planning that we can put in an advanced healthcare directive that educates the people that you love about what it is that you would like your end of life to look like. Mm-hmm. How, how big of a form is it? Well, the one with Kakua Mao, I think is a couple of pages and you can do it online. It's a PDF, you can fill it out online and you can print it and it either needs to be signed by two witnesses who are not your agents or it can be notarized. The one that I do, which I think is a rather exquisite end-of-life planning device, not only includes just if I'm in an ir irreversible coma or pull the, to pull the plug, it also includes provisions like I talked about if you're in a convalescent. I also have some Medicare protection in it so that if you are in a long-term facility, um, Medicare won't come in and immediately sell your house out from under you if you have an intention to return home. Also, uh, mine includes uh, planning for the end-of-life disposition of your body because there's so many ways that people can dispose of their body. Every day there's something new that I read about mm -hmm. as far as disposing of your body. And there's nothing more troubling than for your family not to know what yes. you wanted. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, uh, I remember, in fact, uh, Isla and I wrote a screenplay based on a dinner that we had with uh, 12 people around a table, and we started talking about our, our family's ashes and who still had family ashes and where they were. And the stories that came out of that dinner were quite illuminating. And most people had either their mother's ashes or their father's ashes and didn't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. So they were on the shelf with the shoes or, you know, in some other places that probably that's not where they were meant to be. And then what happens to the family when you die? Exactly. <laughs> what do we do with this? And number one, what is it? Yes. Um, most people that I've written advanced health care directives for want their ashes in, in the ocean. A couple people have wanted them in the mountains. One person wanted them in a national park. And I said, I don't think that's legal, but why don't you just tell your agent what you want? And we're not going to put that in writing. So people have a choice of what they want to have happen. People, mm -hmm. very few people recently have wanted Christian burials, which has really surprised me, mm -hmm. coming from that background where you go to a funeral service and the bodies there on display frequently or the closed casket with a picture of the person there. But most of the people here in Hawaii seem to want to be cremated. Mm -hmm. They do have natural burials where you can be buried in a shroud, especially in North Kohala. There's some places up here where they allow natural burials. And I've had a couple people say that they wanted to do that. Mm -hmm. 
So there's all sorts of options available, but it should be what you want, not that burden shouldn't be on your children to try to figure it out. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you said there were other documents. What other documents should people be aware of? Well, we need a HIPAA release always so that somebody can, your medical team can talk to whomever it is you've designated as your agent. So for people who don't know what a HIPAA release is, could you say more about that? HIPAA is the Privacy Act that the doctors and medical staff have to adhere to regarding giving out information about you. For example, if you call the hospital frequently and ask if somebody's in the hospital, they can't even tell you if somebody's in the hospital. That's part of HIPAA. The doctor can't disclose anything about your medical condition to anybody without your written permission. And the HIPAA release is the written permission for your doctor to talk to somebody. So that would make life very difficult if you didn't have that document and you were incapacitated and couldn't speak for yourself. Right. And most of these documents uh, only come into effect upon incapacitation. For example, um, the durable financial power of attorney where a person doesn't have the ability to pay their own bills, write their own checks. Frequently that's one of the first indicia of incapacitation is that people don't pay their bills. All of a sudden their electricity is turned off. They don't realize that they didn't pay their bills. They forget to pay their bills. And so frequently that's one of the first indicia that somebody is the beginning stages of dementia or Alzheimer's. And then somebody needs to come in to protect you financially. So, And, and that's the, the third document then, yes. a durable power of attorney? Right. And the one that I do, I always recommend that uh, the person only let it go into effect if they're incapacitated. And it's not just their family's opinion about whether they're incapacitated. It has to be supported by a doctor's opinion that this person doesn't have the capacity, the principal doesn't have the capacity to manage their own finances. Because the power of attorney, the financial power of attorney is extremely broad. It covers every potential foreseeable incident where a person would need to be able to sign on behalf of the principal. And so we don't want that in effect when a person's competent to handle their own um, issues. So we only want it in effect upon, upon incapacity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so far we have the durable power of attorney, the medical... The HIPAA release. The HIPAA release. And uh, what else should people be aware of? Well, Hawaii has a law that I find very interesting, and I think it was written because of the coroners on the island or on the state, and that's a declaration regarding disposition of remains. It's extremely important to have that prepared if a person is single, because the coroner is obligated to release the body to your nearest relative. And I've had a number of situations where people live together. They're never married. They live together for years and years and years and then one of them dies, and the one who's left behind automatically assumes that they're going to stand in the shoes of disposition or following this person's wishes because they're the one that's lived with them and they know all about what the person wanted. And yet the coroner cannot release the remains to an unrelated individual without a declaration regarding disposition of remains or an advanced health care directive. 
Well, and I would think that's especially important in Hawaii because many of us, our closest relative is 4,000 miles away. And sometimes the closest relative has not had any contact with you for years and years and years and has no idea what you would want to have happen. Mm -hmm. So the declaration regarding disposition of remains just says who should be responsible for carrying out your wishes regarding the end of life and the end of your body. Mm -hmm. And I had a case where I'd written a will for a husband and wife and the husband's brother passed away. He had been married before and had children, had a long-term marriage, had adult children. His first wife had died and he had remarried. Well, the new wife didn't like the kids from the old wife. And so when the gentleman's brother died because he was married, they gave the disposit they gave the ashes to the new wife and she would not share mm. with the children so that they could even have a memorial Mm-hmm. or as some sort of celebration for end of life for him. Mm-hmm. And so in that situation, I felt that it was really important to to prepare a declaration regarding disposition of remains. And not only did I name his cur- this man's current wife, but I named his daughter as joint. So if for some reason his wife passed before he did, right. his daughter would have standing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to go to the coroner's office mm-hmm. with that form and say, mm-hmm. I'm here to claim the remains of my dad. Mm-hmm. So, And I, I've never heard of that before, and I'm sure I'm not alone. So it sounds like that's a very important form to... Where is the coroner's office here? I really don't know, but I would imagine it's at the county hospital. It's mm-hmm. usually connected to the county hospital. Mm-hmm. And the Kona Hospital, I believe, or maybe it's the Hilo Medical Center is designated as the county hospital, but one of them has a coroner's office, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And because there was so much confusion and no law about it, and people were filing lawsuits over who was going to claim the remains and things of that nature, I'm sure they did it as a courtesy. Mm-hmm. The legislature did it as a courtesy to make sure that that question was answered. So if you're married, your body automatically gets passed over to your spouse. Mm-hmm. So it's not as important if you're married, right. but it's extremely important if you're not married. Right. An- another situation that's come up that has really surprised me, and I think it might be Hawaii specific, certainly wasn't my experience in California, and I wrote 8,000 wills during my law practice in California, but that's the fact that so many people do not, do not have someone that they can name as their personal representative. Um, in other states, they call it executor of your will. Mm-hmm. Hawaii, they call it the personal representative of your mm-hmm. will. Mm-hmm. So I find that very disturbing and troublesome that I remember talking to a gentleman last year and his wife had passed, no children. And I said, you do need a personal representative and I always recommend having an alternate as well. And he said, I don't have anybody. Yeah. How, how could you not have anybody? No mm-hmm. friends, no mm-hmm. relatives, mm-hmm. Uh, only children of only children, mm-hmm. no close relatives. And it took a, wi- a year, a year later, he called and he said, I found somebody now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They live in Arizona, but they're mm-hmm. willing to do it. Mm-hmm. And they really don't have to live on the island to mm-hmm. be the personal representative. Do you think it's better? to have somebody who lives on island? That would be the ideal situation. Um, But having somebody 
not living on the island is not prohibitive because they can come over mm -hmm. and there's a lot of uh, support services on the island that they could utilize. Mm -hmm. A lot of the trust attorneys, for example, mm -hmm. trust administration attorneys have resources for people to clean out houses, mm -hmm. get the house ready to show to sell it if it's going to be sold, dispose of the furniture, bag up the personal property. So there's a lot of people around that are assisting the trust administration attorneys who are available to do that mm -hmm. so they wouldn't have to be here maybe but just come over and check it off and, and mm -hmm. do make sure they have somebody to do it. I've just seen where uh, people when named not on island the probate process seems to linger a lot longer because maybe they couldn't come out right away and uh, filing of papers gets delayed because because of that. And during pandemic, <laughs> probates were taking two and three years. And mm. a typical probate uh, on Big Island is about six to $8,000. And so that comes out of the estate. But I did want to mention that what I told this one man who just said he had nobody is that there are professional fiduciaries available mm. to do all that. Mm -hmm. Now, they do charge a fee, and the closest one is now in Honolulu. Mm -hmm. I heard there used to be one on the Big Island, but she's not here any longer. Mm -hmm. But there are professionals who will use your will, your trust, and your advanced health care directive as tools, mm -hmm. educational tools, to determine what it is you want at the end of life. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, a very good question is, how do you pick that personal representative? You know, is it is it your closest friend, or do you try to figure out somebody who maybe uh, it's based on their integrity? What, what, what would be your advice? Well, anybody that you can trust to carry out your wishes. It doesn't have to be a friend. It doesn't have to be a relative. It... Uh, some people choose their banker, some people choose their accountant, some people choose their bookkeeper. There have been people who chosen their housekeeper. Typically, if you have an intact family, you choose somebody in the family. I'm married, so my husband is my personal representative. I have an adult daughter who lives in Hawaii. She's my second personal representative. And then I have a couple of other children who don't live here, and they're my third choice. Uh, together as third choice because if all else fails at least they can come in and do it but I was doing the um, advanced healthcare directive presentation to my business networking international group in Waimea and I looked around the room and there's 15 20 people there I would trust any one of those 15 to 20 people to carry out my wishes you know in the vernacular of the street they don't have a dog in the fight so they have no reason not to carry out my wishes. So it doesn't have to be a heartfelt decision that is going to put somebody under a tremendous burden. It's basically just taking care of business. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's the last document? Well, this is the most fun one. And um, so I do wills or trusts. So every package that I do is either a will package or a trust package. And a lot of people want to know the difference between a will and a trust. And so, if you don't mind, I'm going to take a couple minutes and just explain it in layman's terms. I think that's very important. At its very lowest common denominator. <laughs> if you have a piece of property, you own a piece of property on, in Hawaii, 
There's only two people who can sign the deed to your property, either you or the judge. So if you have a will, you're asking the judge to sign the deed to your property when your property is sold out of probate. If you have a trust, you designate a successor trustee and your successor trustee stands in your shoes and can sign the deed to any property that you own. So a lot of people come and say, well, I need a trust or I don't need a trust or whatever, but it's really taking it down to its lowest common denominator. There's some things that we can take out of probate just by being really smart and utilizing services that we typically know nothing about. For example, if you have a payable on death on your bank account, you go to your bank and you say, I want to designate a payable on death. That bank account doesn't go through probate. It automatically goes to whomever you've designated as your payable on death. And I learned this when I had a bank account in Oklahoma because I own property in Oklahoma and I wanted to put my husband's name on the bank account. And the banker said, well, he'll have to be in Oklahoma. And I said, he'll never be in Oklahoma. What's my next option? And the banker said, we'll do a payable on death. So at my death, that money would automatically go to my husband. It would, we would not have to open a probate in Oklahoma. So we can take all of the bank accounts out of probate by doing a payable on death with each bank account. And that's something you do with the bank? Yes. Just walk in and say, I want to do a payable on death on my bank account, or you could, some banks call it a beneficiary on death, but let the banker know that you want that account automatically go to somebody at your death. That keeps it out of probate. We can keep our homes out of probate. Hawaii started um, recognizing something called a revocable transfer on death deed. Revocable means it can be revoked. Transfer on death means it only goes into effect at your death. And deed means it's recorded with the Bureau of Conveyances so that when the principal dies, or in the case of a husband and wife, when the second principal dies, that property is automatically transferred to the transferee in that revocable transfer on death deed. And if we do the revocable transfer on death deed, it doesn't go through probate. It's like a joint tenancy, but the reason that it's better than a joint tenancy, in a joint tenancy deed, the joint tenant, you inherit all of their issues. They have a lawsuit, it can hit your property. They go through a nasty divorce, it can hit your property. So I always recommend that my clients never put anybody on their deeds as a joint tenant, just for their own uh, protection. But the revocable transfer on death deed automatically conveys title at your death to whomever you've listed on that deed and it is recorded. Revocable means you can revoke it. I have revoked one. My client was the sole owner of a home and was separated from her husband and didn't want her husband to get the house if she died. So we did a revocable transfer on death deed and listed her brother to get the home if she died. And then they reconciled. <laughs> so she came back to me and she said, can you revoke my revocable transfer on <laughs> death deed? Because now that I'm back with my hubby, I want him to get the house if I die. So I did 
actually revoke a revocable transfer on death deed. You can also change them. So if you were giving your home at your death to a child and that child passed or you were giving it to uh, a child and that child disinherited you or disowned you and you really didn't want that child to get your property anymore, you can, you can change it. Revocable means you can change it, you can revoke it. So if we take the house out of probate and now we've taken all the bank accounts out of probate and pension plans don't go through probate because they have beneficiaries already, so what's left? Personal jewelry. <laughs> collectibles, mm -hmm. vehicles, household furniture, some stock accounts. If all of that that's left is worth $100,000, then you need a trust because in Hawaii, the benchmark is $100,000 value. So if you didn't do the revocable transfer on death deed or do the payable on death on your bank accounts, everything would go through probate because everybody has at least a hundred thousand dollars worth of something most people do so if we take everything out what's left and if what's left is a hundred thousand dollars then you need a trust because you want to avoid probate and that's the objective mm -hmm. is to avoid probate right so when it's at its lowest common denominator that's the difference between a will and a trust and i write a lot of wills for people they just have a house, they just have bank accounts, and I remind them that when we're valuing our furniture, we're using Craigslist. We're not using what we paid for it. Right. When we're valuing our vehicles, we're using Kelly Blue Book. Mm -hmm. We're not listing what we paid for it, so mm -hmm. that's the benchmark. And is another way to jo have joint ownership on cars, for example? I don't understand your question. So in other words, if uh, I have a nice Tesla, if it's owned in my own name and I die, then that's a problem. But if I'm married and have my spouse on the title, will it automatically go to my spouse? It will, and you'll need to take a copy of the death certificate over to Hilo to the Department of Motor Vehicles and fill out a form and pay a small fee, and they will transfer the title into your name alone. Okay. Yeah. But if you had a trust, that wouldn't be, would it be as easy or what would be the difference? Well, the trustee has the right to sign off on the title at your death. Okay. So the trustee has the right to stand in your shoes okay. and do everything that you could have done mm -hmm. had you still been alive. So especially if you have cars or that's when the $100,000 limit comes up, I would think. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. used to be cars were not so expensive, but now they are, aren't they? Right. And a lot of people have collectibles. Mm. They bring over a lot when they move over here. They mm -hmm. bring over a lot of value with things mm -hmm. and have expensive collectibles and things like that. I remember talking to a lady the other day. She said she had Hawaiiana collectibles that were well over a thousand hundred thousand dollars in value mm -hmm. uh, well over a hundred thousand dollars in appraised value mm -hmm. so it's always good to keep that in mind mm -hmm. one of the other things that um, we might use a trust for is to uh, set aside money for our children mm -hmm. and sometimes you may not want your child to inherit a lot of money at the age of 18 right mm -hmm. now I do have a little personal issue uh, with requiring children to wait a long time, mm -hmm. I will 
suggest either 2025, Mm -hmm. maybe even 30. Mm -hmm. But I did have somebody one time ask me to put in their trust that their children couldn't get their money until they were 40 years old. And I said, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. We don't want this cold hand of death reaching from the earth and (laughs) holding people's money up until they're 40 years old. Mm -hmm. So, but a lot of times 2025 is a pretty common age. Mm -hmm. I talked to a woman the other day that she said, I don't think my children are competent at 18 to get the amount of money that would go to them, but I'd like to give them some at 18 some at 22 and some at 25 and you can also set it up so that uh, they get to use the money for health education maintenance and support Mm -hmm. until they reach that age Mm -hmm. so if your 18 year old is going to college that would be health education maintenance and support Mm -hmm. so the money that they're going to inherit at 25 could be tapped from the age of 18 until 25 to provide for their care Mm -hmm. What is the difference in price between a will and a trust? Double. It is. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's a lot of people, what I hear, uh, that I think most people, to your point, really don't know the difference and that they think trusts are just for wealthy people and it's hard to know what that means anymore. Mm -hmm. But So I think it's very helpful to come up with this figure of if your personal belongings are worth at least $100,000, that it makes sense to do it. Mm -hmm. Well... Um, the price for trusts range from about 2000 to about 5000 depending on the attorney, mm-hmm. the complexity of the assets. Um, we've done trusts where we had LLCs that get assigned to the trust, multiple pieces of real property, um, other types of business entities. Sometimes they can get really complex and complicated, mm-hmm. require a lot of work, so those might be a little more expensive. Mm-hmm. But a standard trust... Um, just naming a a successor trustee, putting one piece of real property into the trust and then designating how that property gets disposed of, whether it gets sold and and, uh, divided among the children, Um, then that's, that's the low end. That's the couple thousand dollar trust. You are listening to Eddie Cash Dudley. She has been giving us a very good education about end-of-life documents. On Tutu's Talk Story, I'm Holly Allgood, your host, here on KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. We're going to take a short break and be back soon. Aloha, this is Isla. And Mikel Anna. And we would love to invite you to join us for Activated Intuitive Talk Story. Yes, join us the first Wednesdays of each month from 3 to 4 p.m. Tune in locally at 96.1 FM or live stream from anywhere at knkr.org. And Isla, where would people go if they'd like to tune in to previous shows? I'm so glad you asked because they are located on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts under Intuitive Talk Story. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And we look forward to igniting with you soon. Aloha Kohala. On Sunday, September 18th, the North Kohala Tool Library is hosting a Shop and Drop, a garage sale fundraiser and tool drive. From 11 to 3, you can shop for furniture, toys, clothes, and household items, with all proceeds going to support the tool library. You can also turn your clutter into community resources 
by donating your spare tools to be shared with your Kohala friends and neighbors. The garage sale and tool drop-off will be at our new location at the old Sunshine Hardware Building on Akonipuli Highway across from Kamehameha Park. Again, this is on Sunday, September 18th from 11 to 3. For more information, go to North Kohala Tool Library Facebook page or contact David Gibbs at 987-3116. That's David Gibbs at 987-3116. Mahalo Kohala, see you there. Women's Voices on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala with your host Isla Allgood every Monday and Wednesday from 4 to 6 p.m. Please tune in and hear some sensational songs and spoken words by female artists right here in Kohala and around the world. I've been doing this show for seven and a half years and it's still fun. You can also stream it on www.knkr.org or tune in to 96.1 FM. Aloha, North Kohala and beyond. This is Holly Allgood. You're listening to Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. We're lucky to have Eddie Cash Dudley here today. She's been talking with us about end-of-life documents, and you were starting to talk to me on break about this conversation project. Can you, can you say more about that? Um, yes, the conversation project, I think, is a wonderful tool for education for your family. It's a little worksheet. It's free. It's online. You go conversationproject.org and you can print it out. And it has a lot of questions in there to gently introduce the idea of end-of-life planning to your family. And so what I've suggested for my clients is that they complete it. And it says things like, what would the perfect day be for you at end-of-life? Who would you like to have in the room with you? Who wouldn't you like to have in the room with you? <laughs> would you like to have music? The reason I thought that was such an important question is I just love country and country gospel music. And if anybody played jazz in my sick room, I would probably be crawling the walls. <laughs> <laughs> and would you like to know if you're given a terminal diagnosis? Or would you like the doctors just to tell you a little bit about it? And who else would you like to know about that. Who would you like to share that information with? And once I complete the uh, conversation project form, then I can scan and email that to my family, or I can make copies of it and mail it to my family, so that everybody's on the same page, so that we don't have the types of crisis that can happen at end of life. I remember one of the women in a training class that I was attending was an intensive care nurse and she said it wasn't uncommon for there to be high conflict even to the point of people throwing blows and having to call security because there was so much confusion about what mom or dad really wanted or what mom or dad would have really wanted under those circumstances. So I recommend the conversation project as a gentle way to start the conversation with your family about what would be your perfect end-of-life plan. Yes. Yeah, I think that's so important, and it's so important to know where that document is. 
I know personally I had a similar situation in my family where uh, my mother had very specific wishes about what she wanted at the end of her life and I had a brother who didn't agree and when it came time he informed the staff of his wishes rather than hers and it became a nightmare mm -hmm. so it was it, and I lived out of state at the time but I had to get that document to them mm -hmm. and but thank goodness we had the document right yeah uh, my presentation personally is that I put everything in a binder and I label the binder on the spine so that if you put it in your bookcase you know what it is and all the documents are included in the binder and I include a document called an estate organizer which is just a fill-out form, and it's who who has your utilities, who has your insurance, uh, do you have a life insurance policy, where do you keep it, where do you keep the titles to your vehicles, what are your online passwords so that people can shut down your social media accounts, and so that's all in a binder that could be put in a safe, or, and some people do, you know, mine's in my safe, but mm -hmm. it's just a way to keep everything together in one place. And uh, what, what peace of mind you're giving the family if they have that all documented there. Mm -hmm. So how did you get into this line of work? Well, I started college at 30. I uh, dropped out of high school at 16, which was common for people from Oklahoma not to finish high school. I got married young, had a baby young. And when I was 30, I realized that I really needed to be educated if I wanted to make a living. So I started Modesto, or I started Merced Community College in the San Joaquin Valley of California as a freshman, and I graduated with my associate's degree. I was valedictorian in my college. I went on to Cal State Stanislaw, which is in Turlock, California. And during the time that I was in college, I realized that maybe I could be more than what I'd really started out to be. I started out to be a lending officer in a bank because I'd worked in a bank and discovered that lending officers had a bachelor's degree and I didn't. And I decided I would try to go to law school. I knew it was going to be circuitous. I didn't have the background, didn't have the support, but I got accepted at one of the best law schools in California, University of California Hastings College of the Law in how San did, Francisco. How did you decide to switch from a lender to a lawyer? When I was a freshman and into my sophomore year at the community college where I went, because I had an office background, I was in the counselor's office in a work-study program. And the woman who was directing me put me in charge of the re-entry program. So there was a little room off the cafeteria for people who were re-entry students and I was, I was the paradigm, I was the model of a re-entry student, first year of college at 30. And it was during that period of time that I recognized that there was such a need for people to get information. And it wasn't just how do I find babysitters so if I, if I want to come to college, it was I'm having problems with my landlord, I'm having problems with my ex-husband, I'm having problems with my boyfriend. And I recognized that I didn't have the tool set to help these people. And that if I could go to law school, I would have that tool set that I could be a blessing to those people who needed more than just hand-holding, which was what I was providing as a mentor uh, to people who were entering school. What a great story. All right, so 
you got into law school. What happened next? Well, I graduated from University of California, Hastings College of the Law. And while I was doing work study and internship, I worked for a family law specialist. And he didn't pay me, but I thought, well, I've got the summer off. I might as well do it. And I found that I had a passion for family law. Right after I became an attorney, he became a judge. And I just inherited this huge family law practice and uh, worked it for 30 years. <laughs> so tell us, what is all incorporated under family law? Well, it's primarily divorce. In, in Hawaii, it's divorce, paternity. Divorce can include property division, support, and children. Paternity includes children and child support. Adoptions, I've done a couple of adoptions uh, here, as well as temporary restraining orders in family law matters are fairly common on this island as well. So I did that in California. I became a family law specialist. I taught law school. I sat on the executive committee for family law for the state bar. I wrote books. I was a panelist on grandparents' legal rights. That was one of the passions that I did. When I started my practice, though, I decided everybody had to have a will and everybody had to have an advanced health care directive. I felt the need for that. I went through that with my mom when she passed away. No will, no advanced health care directive. The advanced health care directive probably wasn't as important because she died suddenly. But all of a sudden, the sewing machine that I was supposed to get walked out the door with a niece, which created conflict. And all mom would have had to have done was make a simple will. You can write your own will. You don't have to have a lawyer do it. As long as you do it in your own handwriting and you make it a will, I, Eddie Cash Dudley, hereby declare this to be my last will and testament. I give my estate to my beloved husband. Sign and date it. That's a valid will in Hawaii. So I recognized that everybody needed a will. And there was a situation that I'd become aware of where the Advanced Health Care Directive would have been such a blessing. So I bought the Advanced Health Care Directives from the California Medical Association by the box. I told my clients that if you won't have a will and an Advanced Health Care Directive, I will not represent you. This firm will not represent you. Two times in those 30 years, the Advanced Health Care Directive was an absolute godsend two times. So I wrote 8,000, <laughs> but two <laughs> times. It just became critical and, and important. So when I came over to Hawaii, sold my law practice in California, moved over here in 2014, sort of burned out. You know, family law is a tough area of law to do. How do you so stay positive with all those divorces? I look at it as a process, and it's not my divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I did my own. That's great. That's very <laughs> 45 good. 45 years ago. <laughs> it's not my divorce. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and my objective always in representing people in family law matters is to get through it. Mm -hmm. Just to get through it. So I'm always, what's the next step? How do we get to the next step? And understanding the law and how to get through it has really been a blessing, I think, to my clients. I had, I had a very large boutique law firm in California. So I was sort of burned out when I got over here. I said, don't think I'm gonna do family law. I'm just gonna do senior citizens' wills. And so I did senior citizens' wills and advanced healthcare directives for anybody that wanted one at a very low cost. <laughs> 
and recognized as I was doing that, and then I got involved with the doula training, Bobby Bryant here in Kohala. And talk a little bit about what doula training is for those people who may not know. Well, a lot of people are familiar with birth doulas. In fact, my best friend in California did her thesis on being a birth doula, and she was a birth doula. And that's basically providing support at the beginning of life for the mom and the baby, mostly for the mom. The end-of-life doula is just the same thing. It's just providing support for the person at the end of their life. And so we learn how to be bedside with people who are at end of life. One of the things that we talked about was doing legacy projects for people who are at end of life so that their memories and their life can go down and be passed on to their children and grandchildren. So it might be a video, it might be a scrapbook, it might be putting pictures together. And uh, so an end-of-life doula provides those services, not medical services, but provides the services. I remember one case that uh, I was involved with was a fairly young woman with cancer, two children divorced, uh, terminal cancer, and she called on an end-of-life doula for help. And the end-of-life doula did one of the greatest things in the world that could have been done for that person. This person had all the medical help she could get and all the medical help she could want. She needed somebody to organize her life. She had friends that would show up six at a time, five at a time, four at a time, and maybe when she wasn't even able to get out of bed to greet them. And so my friend came in as the end-of-life doula and basically contacted all of her friends, put them on a schedule, told them what they needed, who needed to go to the grocery store to pick this up, who needed to help with the children. And my end-of-life, my friend then discovered that um, the, the principal didn't have any advanced anything. She didn't have any end-of-life planning and had a fairly large estate that she wanted to go to her children. Well, if it goes to your kids, guess who gets to manage that money? It's usually the ex-husband. And she didn't want that. And most people don't want their ex-husbands managing their, the money that goes to their children from them. So we were able to come in then and all, do all of the end-of-life planning documents for her. So as I got involved more with end-of-life doula training and recognizing that the education needed to happen, then I started developing, instead of just doing the senior citizens' wills, I started developing a rather exquisite advanced health care directive. I connected with an estate planning attorney from California who lives on the island. She had some beautiful models of um, different forms that I could use. So now that's probably about half of my practice is doing end-of-life planning. And I think I mentioned earlier, I just volunteered with hospice, so I'll be helping them with their end-of-life planning documents. So other than these five documents, what advice do you have for people? As it sounds like you've seen an awful lot, you've done an awful lot, and especially you've gotten people through probably some of the hardest times in their life. Do you have any life advice that you wish somebody would give out broadly? <laughs> One of the things that I tell people uh, when I'm working with them in the family law context especially is that it's really easy to get hung up on the small stuff. And in the overall scheme of life, where do they want to be five years from now? I'm a real strong proponent of setting goals and reaching out to 
accomplish those goals and uh, trying to get people to recognize that their life goes on just because they go through a divorce or they go through a custody issue life goes on and one thing that we've discovered in dealing with children is that it doesn't stop when they're 18 you know we might have a custody order in place until a child is 18 but the parents are always going to be there for the births the graduations the weddings and that the best gift that they can give their child is to get along with the other parent that doesn't mean they have to love them maybe they'll never love them again maybe they don't even like them and they don't have to but the gift that they can give their children is to get along with the other parent and that's probably true of everything in life why don't we all just get along? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that before, too. <laughs> and then there's the yes, but. <laughs> so it sounds like you've really uh, put together quite a, uh, a wonderful life for yourself. It's very inspirational that you were able to have the foresight to see to go back to college at the age of 30 and then have that expand into this incredible career and be so such a valuable asset to so many people whose lives you've touched. I have had that said to me a lot. I remember going to inside of an elevator to get up to the courthouse and this young kid, he was probably a young adult, said, hey, do you remember me? And I said, I don't think so. Do I know you? I didn't recognize him. He said, you saved my life when I was seven years old. I said, what? He said, you were the only person that believed my mom when I was telling my mom that my dad was abusing me. Her other lawyer thought she was just hysterical, and you believed her, and you did something about it, and you saved my life. So. That's a pretty powerful compliment. That's a pretty powerful compliment. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I feel like I'm living my dream life over here. I wasn't gonna do family law, but there was a local attorney in my Rotary Club who wanted to move to Arizona, and he said, Eddie, I've got three family law cases. I just can't settle. Please, please, please. And I said, okay, three, I'll do three. And um, so I did those family law cases and recognized that I still have a passion for it. I really like helping people get through those situations. So I do primarily wills and trusts, and not necessarily just for older people. I will say, though, if I'm doing a an advanced health care directive for a young person, I don't use the end-of-life planning one. I just use the Kakua Mal because that's really all they need. They don't need to be thinking about end-of-life planning. So, Since you've mentioned that a couple of times, could you spell that out for us for people who maybe don't know as we could be heard all over the world? Okay. Kakua, K-U-K-U-A, Mao, M-A-U. And it's a nonprofit that I think they get their funding from the state specifically to provide online advanced health care directives that can be filled out online or you can print it out and fill it out. And it's simple. And for young people, that's really all they need. They just need simple. The um, two cases that went up to the Supreme Court where the women were brain dead, both women were declared brain dead, and their family was fighting on whether or not they were going to terminate life support. Those two women, one was 26 and one was 28, but I still have never felt the need to do an extensive end of life, if I'm in a convalescent home, this is what I want, type of instrument for young people. We mm -hmm. just need to know 
If you're in an irreversible coma, if you're brain dead, do you want life support suspended? Um, what would you like to have happen when you die? And young people can answer those questions fairly readily. Um, going into the detail of, <laughs> do you want the windows open? Do you want yeah. to go outside? <laughs> They're not going to do that. That's so a much. we're not going to burden them with mm -hmm. that. <laughs> and if people want to contact you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Well, I answer my phone. I've discovered that I'm one of the few attorneys in Hawaii that I answer my phone and I return emails promptly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and my phone number is 808-854-5912. And I do a half hour free consultation because I don't want to represent everybody who wants to talk to me. And everybody who talks to me doesn't need a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I try to filter out those people who don't need a lawyer and I do a lot of referrals. I don't do everything. I don't do every kind of law. So I filter out and send a lot of referrals to other people. They're good people here on the island. They're good lawyers here on the island that I can refer to with other types of cases. And do you have an email that you're willing to share? Yes, my email is my name, E.F. Cash Dudley, E for Eddie, F for Faye. My real name is Edna Faye, Cash Dudley, no punctuation, at gmail.com. And Dudley is D-U-D-L-E-Y? That's correct. So my name is my daddy and my husband. My daddy was Cash, and when I married my husband, I added his name. So I'm now Cash Dudley because, like he said, I'm an Iowa farm boy, and in Iowa, the woman takes a husband's name. And I said, I'll just add it then. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a delight having you. Uh, thank you so much. I think this was a wonderful public service. And... Uh, We'll have it recorded as a podcast. Thank you so much. I've appreciated it. I love sharing with people how to, how to educate your family about what you want. This is Holly Allgood saying aloha until next time. You've been listening to Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. Aloha. Aloha.